turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5. The sermon tonight is entitled, What Are You Going to Do with God? Think about that that question as I read this passage to you in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it up by Dagon. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before, on the ground before the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. When they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was it was so, they said, The ark of God of the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them, and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And they brought the ark of God of Israel around. After they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, and very much confusion broke out, and he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that the tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, and as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out, saying, They've brought the ark of God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. They sent, them, they, they sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its place so that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there, and the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You know, the story of the Bible is who is supreme. I just almost want to change the whole sermon after reading it one more time in my mind. I mean, look at this is a hot potato, right? <laughs> um, who is in charge? Who has the power? And if you find out the answer to who is in charge, who is supreme, who has the power, then you have to make a decision. You only have one of two decisions. You either bow down to this supreme God or you be rid of him. And that's the sermon. You have to bow down to who is supreme or you have to seek to be rid of him. In first chapter, in first in Samuel chapter four, we come to the probably the darkest point in Israel's history since the days of the Egyptian captivity. Israel's been in a famine, if you will. They have no word. The priests are Eli and Hophni and Phineas. They have not helped the people towards godliness. Uh, the rulers are no better. If you remember what we studied in chapter 4, that first battle, they lose 4,000 men, and the rulers, what do the rulers do? The priests, well, we know what they're doing. 
We know that, that Eli has honored his sons above God, and we know what Eli and Hophni are doing. And the rulers, though, they're just as bad. They go and they say, hey, look, we've lost the battle. What we need to do is go get the ark of God from the temple. Let's bring it out on the battlefield. And that, that means that God, we have God over a barrel, and God will have to give us the victory. Because God would never allow himself to be captured, and he, in not being captured, would not allow us to be defeated. We've got God over a barrel. But we know the Israelites did suffer defeat at the hands of the Israelites. 30,000 died in the second battle. Add that to the 4,000 that died in the first battle. You got 34,000 dead men on the battlefield. Eli and his sons both died, just as the prophet pronounced, and the ark of the Lord was captured by the Philistines. So I'm going to ask you again, who's supreme and who's in charge and who's all-powerful? After all of this takes place, the Philistines have the ark in their possession. They take it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, Ashdod was the premier city of all the five cities established among the Philistines. And now they take the ark of God and they place it in the temple of Dagon. And Dagon is the corn god. The corn god has given the Philistines victory over the Israelites. It sure looks like Dagon has the victory and the Lord is the loser. It looks like Dagon has a trophy and that trophy is the one true and living God. Dagon looks to be supreme and in charge and full of power, and God looks so weak. But the next day, the people rose up, and they find that Dagon is falling on his face before the, the ark of the Lord. In verse 3, it says this, So they, the people of Ashdod, took Dagon and set him in his place again. Now, have you ever stopped to just think about that? Look, watch this. Now, this is the powerful God who has to be picked up by human hands and put back in his place. How powerful is that? Let me ask this question. Who's in whose hands here? Oh, it's fixing to get way worse than this. I think this is all written here for us to kind of chuckle, for us to realize that this God, our God, is not a weak God. He may look weak, but he's a powerful God. So the second day, things get worse. Verse 4 tells us that Dagon falls on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head is cut off. The palms of his hands are also cut off, and every only thing left to him is the trunk. This is, this, is, this, is, this is worth repeating. Del Ralph Davis writes, Dagon is simply getting the godness knocked out of him. <laughs> he is being outgodded by the one true and living God. And so we have Dagon falling on his face before the ark of God and Dagon is showing us and showing the Philistines what we should do when we find the supreme God. He is bowing, forced, forced to bow, but he is at least doing what we all should do. Will the Philistines do this? They should. And let me give you a few reasons why. Because the supreme God's hand is heavy on their God. And the supreme God's hand is heavy on their land, bringing devastation. And the supreme God's hand is heavy on their bodies. Did you notice what was happening to their bodies? They're, they're having tumors. Now, um, some scholars interpret these tumors to be hemorrhoids. So Jerome's Latin Vulgate in 400 AD renders the Hebrew like this. It says, he smote them in the more secret parts of their posteriors. 
So they should they should acknowledge that God is his hand is heavy on their God, heavy on their land, and um, causing them issues in the secret parts of their posteriors. But what do they do? Well, they seek to get rid of him. We're going to see this over and over. Didn't you see it as we read? We're going to move him from Ebenezer to Ashdod, Ashdod to Gath, Gath to Ekron, and then finally out of town. So what do, they do? what do the rulers do? Well, they tell the Ashdodites to take the Ark of God of Israel to Gath, and then as he came there, they threw the whole city into great confusion. The young and the old alike were smitten with more of these tumors. Now, the Philistines know that this God is supreme and in charge and all-powerful, but it's not just, he's not just a God who's powerful in Ashdod. He's a God who's powerful in Gath. He's not just powerful in one place or another. He is all-powerful in all places. But what do the people in Gath do? Do they bow down and worship, or do, do they want to get rid of him? Do they go and do they, do they see his power, and do they say, Maybe we need to go to the people of Israel and ask about this God and see how we should worship this God. Well, they don't do that. We know the answer. They're going to get rid of him. So we see that the ark of God is brought around to Ekron. And when the ark comes to Ekron, basically, this is not in your text, but literally they're saying, oh, no, you don't. We know what happens when this, when this ark comes into town. You have brought the ark of God to Israel around to us to kill us. And so now they're calling together a meeting of all the rulers of the Philistines. And they're saying, send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its place so that it will not kill us and our people. So they got rid of him. But the question now is, how are they going to get rid of him? So they convene another meeting. They call the priest uh, of those priests in the, among the Philistines. And they have a little consultation, and they have determined that they have offended this God, and so that they know they must appease God. And so the way they're going to appease God is they're going to send the ark of God back with five golden mice and five golden tumors or hemorrhoids. I don't know what that looks. I don't even want to think about that. Then as the, the hand of God, as if it's not heavy enough, they come up with a plan to determine whether God has done this or not. Y'all think about this now. Um, God has done it if our plan works out and God has not done it it's just by chance or happenstance if what we are about to do uh, doesn't work out. So here's the plan. They're going to take the ark of God. They're going to place it on a new ox cart. They're going to put two cows in front to draw the ox cart one way or another. But these two cows, they're weighing all the... They're, they're putting... They're stacking the deck against God, if you will. They're going to... Uh, take two cows who've had two calves. And the two calves are going to be right over here, not too far away, and they have these two cows. Take the ark. If it goes to Israel territory, they'll know that God is the one who caused this problem. And if it does, if these cows do exactly what maternal instincts say and go to their calves, they'll know that it happened by chance. And so this is all in place. The cows beat straight out to Beth Shemesh, which is the Israelite territory. They didn't turn to the left. They didn't turn to the right. And they went straight, straight to Israel. And so Davis writes this. He says, here was Yahweh's cow revelation to the Philistines. Perhaps we could all say that the Lord spoke in a very low, very lowing, low and clear voice. 
So the Philistines witnessed all of this, and they stayed near to observe all of this, and they did not miss what was going on. They did not miss the cows as they were lowing the wrong direction, and the little babies are crying out for mama, but they went the way they went anyway. They saw all of this. Would they bow down to the one true and living God? Would they pursue him, or would they be rid of him? You know, you know what happens, don't you? Mm, I'll tell you what. They... They, they were rid of him. So they wiped their brows. They printed chariot stickers that read, I've survived the great plague of 1070, and they were done. Right? They didn't go pursue God. What should they have done? Well, they should have bowed down to the one true and living God like Dagon. They should have gone and pursued truth because they saw who was large and who was in charge. And they should have pursued more revelation. But more like, more than likely, what do they do? You know what we do so many times? We just go back home. We take our Dagons and we set them back. We send them to the shop and have them repaired and have them set back up. And we go on life as usual. Well, what's God teaching us? Well, God is teaching us that when we are in this world, when we come up against God, God, he will come against every single idol that we have no one idol can compare to the supreme power of God. God is teaching us that he is sovereign and that we must bow down before him or, out or be judged. God is teaching the Israelites and God is teaching us that he does not need for us to set him up. He does not need our hands to carry him. He may look weak, but he is not weak. He may look like a captive, but he's never the captive. He's never defeated. He's never feeble. Feeble. Just look at the Philistines. Who was in whose hands? God is teaching us that if anyone needs to be carried, it's not him. It's us. You and I need a powerful God who can break our idols, the idols in our hearts, and carry a great burden of sin that is ours, for we've sinned against him. God has given a Savior to us. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the one who's supreme and in charge and powerful. He has gone to the cross and died for our sins. If God does not save us, then we will simply be rid of him, go back home, and set up our Dagons after repairs are made. Well, let's move on. When the ark of God came to Beth Shemesh, the people of God also received the ark with a double response. Now, we find this response in chapter 6. There's a response of joy and there's a response of indifference. Now, in, in chapter 6, verses 13 through 15, I'm going to save a little time by not reading it, but I'll tell you what happened there. So these cows, they beat it straight to Beth Shemesh, and there's a group of people that receive the ark of God with great joy. They celebrate. They, they take the ark, the, uh, they take the ox cart. Let me get my wood first. They take the wood, they cut it all to pieces, and they take the cows and they butcher them and they offer sacrifice to God, and they're joyful over the fact that God is present with his people. So this is one response, a response of joy. And then there's a reception of indifference there in verse 19. Now this is a, this is a little bit messy. And um, I read an article today just to kind of make sure I was on the right track. <laughs> this guy said this is one of those verses that makes every Bible scholar scratch his noggin. That was the statement that was made. In the New American Standard uh, chapter uh, 95 edition, it says this, He the Lord, if you look at your verse 19, I think most of you have an ESV, it probably is corrected to 70 people. 
70 men. It says, He the Lord struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down all of the people, 50,070 men, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Now there's no doubt about this, that this verse has some issues with its transmission. Literally it reads in many uh, manuscripts, 70 men, 50,000 men. Uh, the 50,000 men is missing in most of the Hebrew manuscripts, and it's also missing in the Septuagint. So we could also know that, note that the uh, Beth Shemesh village probably did not even have 50,000 men. So more than likely, most transcript, tra uh, manuscripts that say 70 men are, uh, is the right translation. Now, if we look at it this way, there are two translations. There's the Masoretic text corrected to 70, and there's the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew text, and it is also, it says, 70. Now, both of these translations speak of 70 men that are struck down, but for two different reasons. In the Masoretic text, it says that the men were struck down for looking at the ark. Now, what does that mean? Because everybody sees the ark coming in on this ox cart. Everybody sees it. So we know that not every, why, why were they struck down? Well, they weren't struck down because they saw it. They were struck down because they were staring at it. They were struck down because they made it a tourist attraction. And so these folks who made the ark a tourist attraction, instead of a place of worship and receiving the Lord who had come into their presence, they made it a tourist attraction and they were judged for that. Now, the Septuagint reads in 1 Samuel 6, 19 like this. It says, The descendants of Jeconiah did not join in the celebration with the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh when they greeted the ark of the Lord, and 70 of them were struck down. So there's those who made it into a shrine, possibly, and then there are those who simply received it with indifference. While all these folks are worshiping the God that the ark represented, these folks are just saying, we don't really care that you're here. We don't care about the ark. We don't care that it's come back. And so for this response, they are struck down. And then following this terrible judgment with these 70 men struck down, all the men in Beth Shemesh began to mourn. In verse 20, it says this, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom, this is the killing statement, and to whom shall he go up from us? What are they going to do with him? They're going to get rid of him. They're going to get, they're going to get rid of the ark of God. How can we be rid of him? So some rejoiced and some wanted to be rid of him. And those who receive him appropriately rejoice. They bring a blood sacrifice on the wood. And those who want to make money off of a tourist attraction or those who are indifferent, they are judged. Now, as we think about that, that pattern is in the New Testament. I'm going to try to modify how much I say here because I don't want you to be too hot too much longer. But let me, let me, let me show you this pattern in the New Testament. Think about Jesus when he's born in Bethlehem in Judea. 
There's King Herod, and there he is standing with Magi right in front of him, following a star all the way to the center, if you will, of the world. And they are saying to King Herod, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We followed his star to this place. And, of course, they are so excited. They're ready to go and bow down. They're going to actually go all the way to Bethlehem. They're going to bring their gold and their frankincense and myrrh, and they're going to bow down and worship Jesus Christ. But what is Herod and what are all the people in Jerusalem going to do? They are disturbed. They are very unhappy. They do not like the fact that there's this newborn king around. And so they become more and more agitated. And rather than bow down and worship before this newborn king, they get more stirred up and upset until finally he sends out his marauding bands of men to go and kill all the little boys from two years old and younger. And so we see it again. We see those who bow down and those who worship and those who really don't care and want to get rid of him. We see a fragile God. We see a God that looks like he's standing in front of Dagon, like he's a wimp, a little baby. But God doesn't, but these men do not reckon on the power of God being in this little one. And so one would seek to kill while another would seek to bow and worship. In John chapter 11 and John chapter 12, Jesus receives the word that his friend Lazarus is dying. We all remember the story. (laughs) He knows that he's dying and he tells his disciples that he's dying, but he waits and tarries and doesn't go. And when he gets there, Lazarus is already dead. And many think that Jesus is going there to give comfort to the family, and he was. And many think that Jesus is going to weep with those who weep, and he did. And many believe that when Jesus was on his way, that if, they would have, if he would have just gotten there before Lazarus died, that he could have kept him from dying. And he could have because he had proven that he could in, in other instances. But many believe that now since Lazarus is dead, that Jesus is up against a Goliath that he can't overcome. Death is supreme. I heard this week and a guy was talking about Goliath and he was talking about Goliath had all the technology of the day. His thing about death, death never has been defeated. Jesus is up against something that has never been overcome. But death did not count on the power of God. And so this greater than David, our Lord Jesus Christ, like the David before him, made his way to the tomb. He gathered up his five smooth stones and he gathered up his sling and he took out a rock And that rock was called Lazarus come forth. (laughs) And guess what happened? Death had to give him up. Here's Lazarus. Lazarus came forth from the grave. And Jesus, he defeats the Goliath called death. Ten feet tall and trained with all his power and all his skill. Jesus breaks death's chains. And so our greater than David takes out this stone and slings it into the death's forehead immediately people begin to bow down and they begin to worship jesus as the one who's supreme and in charge and all powerful mary and martha and lazarus all had him into their home and they all gave him a great party in honor of him and mary we remember she was at jesus feet i can't remember something like twenty five thousand dollars worth of perfume she pours on his feet and at this moment at the very moment that all of that is taking place there are people who, not, who want to kill Lazarus and there are people who want to kill Jesus. We need to be rid of him. Well, then we come to the cross. And in 1 Samuel chapter 5, we read that God allowed himself to be taken captive. 
we read that God allowed himself to be looks to look so weak and so defeated. He allowed his enemies to think that they had had victory over him. And so we come to the cross and we see this little baby's grown up to be a man and he is condemned. He looks like a loser. He how in the world can he win? He's battered and he's beaten beyond recognition, broken and bleeding and say the soldiers strike him in the side to confirm that he's dead. It appears that this supreme one is only supreme to a point. He may be able to raise up a Lazarus, but he can't overcome suffering and death himself. And so he is buried and his enemies are triumphing over him. Death is uh, having a party. The devil's glorying over Jesus and has him in the grave. They're rid of him. But no one counted on the power of God. No one reckoned on the power of Jesus Christ. No one thought that the cross could be that final stone that he would place into his, the pouch of his sling and sling it as hard as he could at death and at Satan's head and strike him dead. No one counted on the power of God to work in the coolness of that tomb and raise him back to life, never to die again. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. He comes in human flesh to save his people from their sins. And at Easter, we celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead as he rises up and defeats Goliath that one last time by supreme power. And you and I, we either bow and worship Jesus like the Magi or we rebel against Jesus and continue going our own way, desiring to be rid of him. During the Christmas holidays, I was when I grew up, I was going to Tyler Junior College basketball tournament in, for a high school tournament. And probably this was right after he graduated from there. And so I would go, and I was in the seventh grade. I guess that makes me, what, 12 years old? And my dad would drop me off, and he would call basketball games. Well, soon I found out that I was getting in for free because I was with the referee. And this would start at 8.30. These games would last till 10. And so as a seventh grader, I would stay all day. For $5, you could stay all day, have popcorn, cookie, whatever. I was all there all day. Well, as, as this continued, this little tradition of mine continued over the years, friends of mine would come and they would sit with me and we'd watch games. And then finally we'd go, you know, we don't want to watch those last games. Let's just go to somebody's house. We'll have popcorn and I'll have Cokes and we will play Monopoly. So we start playing Monopoly every night, every night. This is all during Christmas break. So we're playing Monopoly. And, you know, Monopoly, you get $1,500. To start the game, you get $200 every time you pass go. And every time you land on a piece of property, you have to make a decision. Do I buy that B&O railroad or do I buy this piece of property or not? So you buy the properties and so on. And as time goes by, you know, you pass go, you collect $200. And then have, you know, if somebody lands on your property, they owe you money. Rent. Where's the rent? Where's the rent? Where's the rent? $24, $24, $16, whatever. Where's the rent? Well, as time goes by, you know, you're buying houses for your property. You're enhancing your property, houses, hotels, houses, hotels. And then if you land on my property, you owe me maybe more than $24 because I have a hotel on it, or maybe two. And so the goal of the game is ultimately to force everybody else into bank bankruptcy, and you are going to be hopefully the final survivor of the game. And in the game of Monopoly, there's only one winner, folks. 
There's only one survivor. And there's no room in the game of monopoly for virtue. There's no room in the game of monopoly for mercy. There's no room in the game of monopoly for a payment plan. There's not. These are the rules of monopoly. But these are not the rules of God. When you and I are confronted with the supremacy of God, that God is in charge, when we land on God's property, these are not His rules. If you and I bow down before God and acknowledge our debt, if you and I bow down and acknowledge we cannot pay our debt, if you and I acknowledge that He is the one who can save us from our idols and save us from our sins, you know what He does? Well, He sure doesn't break our heads off. And He sure doesn't cut our palms of our hands off. And He sure doesn't cause us to hurt in secret places. And He sure doesn't cause us devastation. He saves us by His mighty power. He may look weak. His body is broken and His blood is shed. He may look weak. But on the cross, God's hand was heavy against His Son for you. And on the cross, God's hand caused His hands to be pierced. And on the cross, God knocked him down so he didn't have to knock you down. And on the cross, Jesus was devastated and took shame for our sins so that we might know the mercy of his hands. And we know that the cross is the very power of God. That is the same power that raised him from the dead. I think, don't forget this. Do not, even Christian person tonight, do not underestimate the power of God to help you this moment. What are you going to do with God? He is supreme and in charge and all-powerful. And He alone can crush all your gods. And He alone can forgive all your sins. And He alone can give you life from the dead. Will you bow to Jesus? Will you receive him by God's grace and through faith? Or will you be rid of him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for an evening. We thank you for helping us through a little bit of warmth here. But we pray that you would remind us of your mighty power, especially as you reveal it to us in the person of your son, Jesus. We praise you that even though he may look weak on the cross, he was mighty powerful. So powerful, Lord, to come to this earth, to live a perfect life and die this death in our place, and then be raised from the dead by mighty power, to take us captive, to take us with him into the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And Lord, even as we're here on this earth, we're connected to the Lord Jesus by faith. We pray that you will remind us every single day not to underestimate how wonderful you are, how powerful you are, and how gracious you are to help us in our days that we, that we have remaining in our lives. Strengthen us now as we leave to do your will. We'll praise you for it. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.